You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and when you find your place there, let us pray before we begin. Father, you are a God of light and life and truth, and you have revealed yourself in the pages of Holy Scripture. And we thank you that we have the joy and the privilege, the delight of opening your word in our own language and reading it and hearing it preached and understanding it. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to that truth and to that light that is revealed in your, your word. We ask that you would do this for the glory of your own name. We pray that you would make your word our central focus, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our everlasting and eternal concern. We ask this for the glory of Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we are looking today at verses 11 through 14, and these are the, the last few verses that are in this section of Proverbs that make up this long stretch of Proverbs in verses 1 through 14. And uh, we have seen that Solomon in this passage is offering to us a better way. He is using the terms better than and advantage to describe the path of wisdom. Wisdom is the way in which we are to walk. Uh, God has created the world in such a way that there are natural laws, there are spiritual laws, as it were. And when we go against natural laws, we get hurt by those natural laws. You can't jump off of a building and expect to not suffer the pain of violating the natural laws of the universe. And the same is true with the spiritual laws that are in place. And I'm not talking about the four spiritual laws that form a tract or anything like that. I'm just talking about the way that God has created the world to work. He has designed humanity. He knows us. He knows we are but dust. He has created a world in which things are to function and work in a certain way. And the wise man will hear what God has said concerning how things are to work, and he will walk in that path. The wise woman will seek out how it is that God has designed creation and walk in the path of wisdom. And wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs um, as, as, as standing alongside the road of the fool and taunting the fool for ignoring wisdom. I'm going to read to you Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 33. Listen to what wisdom says. Now this is, this is Solomon describing wisdom as if wisdom is speaking to us. And here is what she, that is wisdom, says. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. Then they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. That is graphic, isn't it? It is as if wisdom is standing by the wayside of the, the path of the fool and says to the fool, I told you so. This is your bed. You made it. You get to live in it. You get to sleep in it. You get to walk in it. You have sown the wind. Now you get to reap the whirlwind. This is what you have coming to you because you have resisted the counsel of the Lord and you have not heeded the reproof that wisdom offers. 
A fool is somebody who delights in their own understanding, in the sound of their own voice, in figuring out life their own way. A fool is one who rejects the counsel of God, who rejects what God says in His Word concerning life and how it is to be lived. And so when a fool lives a, a, a life that is across the grains of how God has created things and told us to walk, the fool suffers harm. Proverbs say that the, the path of the transgressor is hard. Living life as a hardened sinner of, against Kicking against and fighting against the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God, it is tough. It makes for bitter, hardened, angry people at the end of their lives. That is what a fool gets. And wisdom stands off to the side and says, I offered you reproof and you didn't want it. I offered you counsel and you refused to take it. Because see, here it has been all of our lives. And there it is. And we neglect it and we deny it and we ignore it to... The peril of our own soul, that is what Proverbs says, to the detriment of our own spiritual life. So we're looking at the path of wisdom, and, and in here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I suggested a few weeks ago that verses 1 through 12 is sort of a collection of Proverbs, where Solomon says this is better than that, and he has presented a path of wisdom. And then I said to you a few weeks ago that verses 13 and 14 are kind of the concluding thoughts to the passage, to this collection of Proverbs. I want to backtrack and change that. Everything I say, I always hold it as a sort of loosely, and I, I reserve the right to correct later on what I say is going to happen in the future. This is one of those examples. I thought verses 13 and 14 were sort of the concluding proverbs to this passage. I don't, I don't think it is. Having studied through this and seen the argument that Solomon is making, I would suggest something else. In verses 13 and 14, Solomon is answering the second question that he raised back in chapter 6, verse 12. And we saw that verses 1 to 12 answers the first question that Solomon asked in chapter 6, verse 12. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? That's the first question. Who knows what is good for a man? What's the answer to that? God knows, and He has revealed it in Scripture. God knows what is good for us during the few years of our life. God knows how it is that we should live in this vain and futile world that is struck under the curse of God, this Genesis 3 fallen world. God knows what is good for us. And so Solomon answers that question in verses 1 to 12. This is better than that. This is better than that. This is an advantage to that. God knows what is good for us. And so he has revealed it. Verses 13 to 14 answer the second question in chapter 6, verse 12. The second question is at the very end, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? That's the second question. Who knows what is good for a man? God does. Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 7. Here's the answer to what is good. Who can tell a man what will come after him under the sun? The, that is answered in verses 13 to 14. The answer to that is no one can because God keeps us hidden from us. Why does God keep the future hidden from us? We'll get to that in just a second. But there is a good and gracious and kind purpose in God keeping the future hidden from us. So look at the end of verse 14 chapter 7. Uh, just look at verse 14, I guess, starting at the beginning. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So chapter 6, verse 12, asks the question, who can tell a man what's going to come after him? Chapter 7, verse 14, answers that question, no one can tell a man what is going to come after him. Nobody knows that future. So verses 13 to 14 are not concluding verses. They are answering the second question that he raised at the end of chapter 6. So let's look first of all in verses 11 and 12 at more Proverbs concerning the, the advantage of wisdom in verses 11 to 12. Proverbs concerning the advantage of wisdom. And then we're going to look at verses 13 to 14, which answers this question uh, about how to trust God uh, under his sovereignty, living under the sovereignty of God when we do not know what the future holds. So verse 11 and 12, let's read the whole passage together, these four verses. 
Verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Verses 11 and 12 describe to us the advantage of wisdom. And I want you to notice how the English translations render it. Probably most English translations sitting here read, because most people here, I shouldn't assume that. How many people here have the NASB? This is a good chance to take a poll. Okay, about half, unfortunately. So, <laughs> verse 11, notice how, he, now notice how it is rendered. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. Now, the English translation of that in the NASB tends to suggest that what Solomon is saying is these two things coming together, wisdom along with an inheritance. And it could be taken, let me show you two different ways that the verse could be understood just by the, the emphasis that I place along with saying this, all right? Here's the emphasis. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is a good thing. Now that would suggest if you, you get an inheritance, the inheritance could be good or the inheritance could be bad, but if you get wisdom along with an inheritance, that makes the inheritance a good thing. So maybe the inheritance is a bad thing, but if you get wisdom with the inheritance, that makes the inheritance good. Or I could emphasize it this way. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is a good thing. That would seem to suggest that wisdom by itself is what? Not necessarily good, but if you get it coupled with a bunch of money, then wisdom can be a very good thing. You see how that, see how that is? Now, here's what's interesting. The, 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 pre, the preposition that is translated along with in the NASB, that preposition can be translated a number of different ways because it can describe a number of different things. It can be used at least two different ways that would be germane to our context here. First, it could be used to describe combining two things, and that's how the NASB does it. Wisdom along with an inheritance. These two things combined are a good thing. Or the preposition can be used to compare two things, right? To describe a comparison between these two things. Now, which, which would it be? And by the way, don't let that disturb you that there's some mystery there. We have this in the English language with nearly all of our prepositions. The preposition for, like I did this for you, F-O-R, the preposition for, I looked it up this morning. There are 35 different ways that that preposition can be used in the English language. 35. Now, how do you tell which one of those ways is how I intend it? By the context and language and the culture and the way that we use words today. It's the same thing in the Hebrew language with this, this word. Like, and even our English word, about. If I say to you, that's what I'm all about, or it's about 1130. That's two different ways of using the word about, right? To describe two different things. It's the same thing here with, with uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes. As he is talking about, and he uses this word along with, it's either combining two things or it is comparing two things. The NIV translates it this way. Oh, you know what? I didn't even write that down. Okay, the NIV translates it. This is from memory now. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing for those who see the sun. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing for those who see the sun. In this instance, in this situation, I think that the translation of the NIV is better. Well, that was hard to say. I mean, it got right here and didn't want to come the rest of the way up. It even made me gag just a little bit. In this situation, the translation of the NIV is better. Wisdom is like an inheritance. Look at verse 12. 
Verse 12 explains what Solomon's talking about in verse 11. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. See what he's doing? He's comparing two things. He's not combining these two things in verse 11, even though that's the way most English translations would render it. I would suggest that Solomon is comparing these two things. What he has in mind are, is the way in which money and an inherit, no, that's redundant. Money and wisdom are similar. He is comparing those two things. There is a way in which wisdom is very much like money. Then we have to read the, we read the context and read the next verse to understand what is that comparison that he makes. It is a good thing. Just money is a good thing and wisdom is a good thing for those who see the sun. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a very good thing for those who see the sun. Then we have to read verse 12 to find out what is Solomon saying is good about money. Because we've just spent almost two chapters or a good part of chapter five and most of chapter six talking about the ways in which monies fail us, right? The ways that riches fail us. But now Solomon is describing something that is good about money. Now here's how you need to understand an inheritance in a Jewish context and, and back up a little bit and kind of give you a way of hearing this from the Jewish mind. In the Jewish culture of Solomon's day, an inheritance was a very serious matter. In fact, in Judaism and in Israel, everything about their culture and the Old Testament law, I shouldn't say everything, but the culture of the Old Testament law was structured in such a way as to preserve the inheritance that one person would give to their descendant and on down. Think of all the different things that are that seek to guard that inheritance. There are strong warnings and horrible legal consequences for somebody who would move a boundary mark from this to this, six inches. Warnings in the law against doing that. Why? Because God was serious about what the boundaries of each tribe were to be and the, and the boundaries that were given to each family. That is why you read through the Old Testament, the book of Joshua and Judges, and it describes in this great detail who got what as an inheritance and the land of this and the lake of that and the tree next to Mamre and the city of this and who got what cities. God was concerned about all of that so that the nation itself in all of their law and in all of their economics would be, end up passing down from generation to generation all of these these possessions, their inheritance. There were laws regarding which son was to get what from their father and how much of it. And what would happen to a family if they had family had no sons? What would be passed on to the daughters and how would they handle it? And the, the whole idea of a brother, um, if, a, if a woman marries a man and they have no children and the man dies, his brother was to marry that woman and take her to be his wife and raise up children for his brother. Why? So that his brother's name not perish and his brother's inheritance be handed down to somebody else? The entire financial structure of the nation of Israel was structured around the, the year of Jubilee so that all the lending and the selling and the buying and the leasing and everything revolved around and was, and, and was prorated around the year of Jubilee when everything would revert back to where it was. Every 50 years, the nation hit a reset button. Everybody got their land, their inheritance, and their boundaries back. Why? Because God was concerned that one generation be able to hand down to the next generation an inheritance. Now, the individual who received an inheritance, the advantage that they would get from that is almost indescribable compared to somebody who did not receive any inheritance. The entire nation was structured around making sure that this land that God gave to them would pass down tribe by tribe, family by family, city by city, lot by lot to the very people to whom it was given. Generation after generation after generation. And we understand a little bit of that in our own day. If you never received a, a, a tract of 100 acres from your grandpa when he died and the land was divided up amongst them and it still remains in the family, if you've never received that, you understand what that is like. And you also understand what it's like if you were somebody who received a massive inheritance from your, from your forefathers and they gave you a big tract of land. The advantage of the one over the other is, is unbelievable. And in that day, it was even more so. So in what way then is wisdom 
like an inheritance. It is a huge advantage. And the added advantage, the added advantage for, the, for, for them is that wisdom actually preserves the lives of its possessors. You'll notice in verse 12, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So in what sense is wisdom like an inheritance? It's a protection. And the word translated protection there, it's kind of an interesting word. It's also translated as shade or shadow. So literal rendering of that would be wisdom is a shadow, just like an inheritance is a shadow. What, is, what does Solomon mean by that? That it's passing and fleeting? That's not it. He, he has the idea of protection. In a Middle Eastern Israeli context, when that sun is out at high noon on the hottest days of the year, what do you, what do you want? Shade. You want shade. You want protection. You want to be inside the tent where it's hot, but not as hot as standing out in the sun. And the idea is that wisdom and an inheritance offer us protection from the harsh realities of life. Now, we understand this in a financial sense, that wisdom offers certain, or, sorry, that, that money offers certain protections to those who have it. It is better in this life to have money than to not have it. Solomon is not suggesting that money answers all of our questions, that money answers all of our problems. In fact, he's already said in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that money presents its own, own unique host of difficulties and issues, right? So it's not that it brings us satisfaction. It's not that it buys us happiness. Solomon has destroyed those notions. But having money is better than not having money. We live in a country where even the poorest among us enjoys protection from the harsh realities of life that Solomon never enjoyed. Even the poorest among us. We can refrigerate our food. On the hottest day of the year, we can freeze our food. We can store it long term. We can buy vehicles. We can buy, we can heat our houses in the winter and cool our houses in the summer. We can put fans up here that keep us all slightly awake every Sunday morning. These are luxuries that shield us from the harsh realities of life. So we understand that in a financial sense. In terms of wisdom, the same is true. The one who walks in wisdom is shielded from some of the harsh realities of life. The person who walks in the wisdom of God is going to choose his friends wisely and understand what having what the impact that choosing friends can have upon his life and his future. He's going to use his finances wisely. He's going to speak with wisdom. He's going to guard his mouth. He's going to watch his steps. He's going to avoid the arms of a harlot that will destroy him and sap his, his, uh, his income and sap his energy and his livelihood. The individual who walks in wisdom will avoid some of the common mistakes that a fool would make. The fool thinks of nothing about but right at the moment. The wise man looks ahead and sees the course of action that he is stepping onto, and he makes a choice regarding this. I'm not going to do this, or I am going to do that. That's the product of wisdom. So it is a shelter and a shade from the harsh realities of life. So we understand that that's what Solomon is describing here. This is the way in which money and wisdom are alike. They shelter us from the harsh realities of life. Wisdom can do that. And that is why he's saying that walking in wisdom is better. I look at verse 12 where he says that wisdom or knowledge preserves the lives of its possessors. Verse 12, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Now he's using wisdom and knowledge synonymously in the same sense here in this verse. That is not always the case. It's not true that knowledge equals wisdom in each and every instance. There's a way in which we have to distinguish between knowledge and wisdom because those two things are not necessarily the same. You may know a lot about a lot of things. You may read widely and understand all kinds of things about life in this world. You may be very intellectually smart, a scientist, for instance. You may have degrees from a university. You might be able to build a skyscraper or rebuild an engine or build a design a bridge or make airplanes fly. You can have all of that intellectual capacity and still be more foolish than a 12-year-old who knows their Bible well. 
Because knowledge and wisdom are not necessarily the same thing. You could be the Cliff Clavin of your friends, sitting around where everybody knows your name, waxing eloquently on things that you know and things that you read, and people are awed by your, by your grasp of trivia because you read my Friday factoids on Facebook or something like that. And so you have a good grasp of all those things, but you could still be as utterly foolish as the most foolish people and make, make tragic mistakes with your life. Knowledge and wisdom are not necessarily the same thing. But when we are talking about somebody who knows God's Word and God's wisdom, and he has understanding regarding the realities of life and the spiritual realities of life because he understands truth. And this is what he knows. In that way, knowledge and wisdom are the same. And that's how Solomon uses it in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, these are all the same thing when we are talking about knowing God's truth and knowing God's wisdom. And here's the advantage of wisdom. It preserves the lives of its possessors. How does it do that? In what sense does wisdom preserve our lives? This is very similar to what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, and I'll read you a few examples. One of them we read in chapter 3, verse 18. She is a tree of life, that is wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. In other words, grab a hold of wisdom, love her, wisdom, cherish her, hold it fast, it's like a tree of life to you. Proverbs 8, verse 35, He who finds me, that is wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 9.11, For by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Proverbs 11, verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.19, He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. In what way does, does wisdom preserve the life of its possessor? You know what I mean. In this sense, and in this way, wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Physically, it is true that a wise person, things, things will go well with a, a life well lived in wisdom, better than it will in a life that is lived in foolishness. As the scripture says, the way of the transgressor is hard. Foolishness is the difficult path in this life. You want difficulty, you want physical illness, you want the potential of having a short life, you want to run afoul of authorities, you want to get in trouble, you want to mar your good name, walk in the path of folly. That is the path of a very difficult life. You want to walk in the path of wisdom? This is the path of life. Now, are there exceptions to this? There are exceptions to this. Uh, Solomon, in fact, describes some exceptions to this. We're going to look at next week, beginning in verse 15 through the rest of this chapter. There are exceptions to this. Sometimes it is true that the wise individual dies young. And sometimes it is true that the foolish individual, the most foolish among us, lives to a ripe old age and dies at 100 years old having served 60 of them in Congress. Sometimes that is true. Those two things can both happen. Those are the exceptions. But even though those exceptions happen, even though those exceptions are real in this life, that does not negate the value of wisdom. Because chances are good that if you walk in wisdom, things will go well with you. Your life will go well. Are there exceptions? Yes. But wisdom is still the better path. That is what Solomon says in chapter 15, verse 31 of Proverbs. He says, For whose he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. And this is another way that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Ultimately, wisdom will lead us to the one in whom dwells all wisdom and understanding, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because divine wisdom tells me I cannot trust in myself. I cannot trust in my own understanding. I cannot trust in my own righteousness. I cannot trust in my own knowledge. I must have something outside of me to give me knowledge and understanding and wisdom and righteousness. 
And divine wisdom will ultimately lead me not to trusting in humanity and human's wisdom, but to trust in a God who is all wise. Divine wisdom, even in the Old Testament sense, will ultimately lead me to seek salvation in the one, Jesus Christ, in whom dwells all the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. That is in Christ. So divine wisdom is able to equip me to live a life well lived here, to preserve my life in a physical sense, and it will drive me to the person of Christ in whom I must find a an abundant provision of wisdom in this life. All right, that is the way of wisdom. That is the advantage of wisdom. Now let's look at life lived under the sovereignty of God in verses 13 and 14. Now again, here Solomon is, in verses 13 and 14, Solomon is using the word advantage instead of better than. He's using the word advantage, which is a slight variation on the better than theme. And you'll notice verse 13 and 14 again, they answer that second question in chapter 6, verse 12. Who can tell a man what will come after him? Solomon's answer is nobody can tell a man what will come after him because life is bent. That's what he says in verse 13. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Consider the work of God. Who is able to straighten what he has bent? Now, the, the fact that the future was unknown was something that perplexed Solomon. And we've seen him mention it already in the book of Ecclesiastes. Back in chapter 2, it frustrated Solomon that he would acquire all this wealth and yet he didn't know who was going to inherit it. Right? A wise son or a foolish son or even somebody who had not worked for everything he had accumulated. He didn't know that. He couldn't guarantee that. The future was unknown to Solomon. In chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says that the work, uh, that God has set eternity in our hearts so that the work which God has done from beginning even to the end cannot be known by men. God has worked history in His providence in such a way as to keep the future hidden from us. He says in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth? I've seen that nothing is better than that man should eat and be happy in his activities, for that is his life. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? This was a mystery to Solomon. He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. He couldn't foresee the future as wise as he was. Even with all of his wisdom, he did not know what the future held. And he was content with that. And he says in Ecclesiastes that one of the things that God has done is kept the future hidden from us. How does God keep the future hidden from us? By making life bent. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God who is able to straighten what he, that is God, has bent. If God has bent something, then it's bent. And this is the reality. Life for us is bent. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Solomon is not using, by the word bent, bent or crooked, he is not using a term that describes something in a moral sense, as if that what God has done is evil and that God does evil and that he has made evil. That's not what Solomon is describing. He's not describing crooked or bent in any moral sense. He's just simply saying there are things about life that we don't like, that we wish weren't the way that they are. These are not necessarily moral issues or ethical issues. They're just, this is the way life is, and, and we don't necessarily like it. I, I wish that certain things about life weren't the way that they are. I wish that I could schedule the rain. I wish that I could schedule the snow. I wish I could schedule the seasons. I wish I could, I wish all kinds of things were different. But these are just, sometimes we have to do things that are just our duty. That's life under the sun, right? We gotta do dishes. The, the house gets dirty. You can clean the house, you can walk away from it. Even if you have no children, you can walk away from it and leave it the way it is and come back and it's dirty somehow. Everything just deteriorates, right? Our cars don't work the way that we want them to work. Things, everything in life is just broken and bent. God has bent these things. He has, He has engineered life to be in a certain way. It's a crook in a stick so that there are bends and crooks and valleys and rights and lefts and that's just not the way that we like it. We wish things were different. I wish that I would have invested in Amazon or Apple or Microsoft or Netflix. $100 in each one of those 20 years ago, right? Or whenever they started. 
we'd be in our new facility by now. All of us would be enjoying life. Life would be so much better for me, right? That's what we tend to think. There are certain things about life that we just wish were different. The reality is that life is bent. And Solomon is describing just the crooked aspects of life, the things that are not the way that we want them to be. And what is he telling us to do? To consider this. To consider that life is bent. Let, it re- let, let yourself reflect upon the fact that God has done this. There are, he says in verse 14, days of prosperity and days of adversity. Both of these things come from the hand of God. We tend to think that the, the good times come from God, the bad days come from the devil. And that they are in some cosmic battle in the heavenlies fighting over whether I have a good day or a bad day. And I had a good day today. That was the Lord's blessing. I had a bad day now the next day. And that was Satan got one past God. Somehow figured out a way to, to, to mess up my day when God wanted to give me a good day and the Satan messed it up. No, no, no. That's an unchristian way of thinking about the providence and the sovereignty of God. The good days and the bad days, they both come from the hand of God. That's what Solomon says in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. These are the days of our lives. And I don't mean that in a soap opera sense. But these are the days of our lives. There are good days and there are bad days. Some days everything is glowing and great. We wake up and the birds are singing and the sun is shining. And we are on time for work and, and breakfast comes together and everything is great. And we show up at the office and everything runs perfectly, and the clients are all happy, and the customers are happy, and everything is great, and it seems like we've worked 25 minutes, and all of a sudden, it's lunchtime. We say, lunch already? And before you know it, the day is over, and we go home, and the spouse is phenomenal and fantastic, and, and dinner comes off without a hitch, and it's delicious. the best thing you've eaten in months, and it's just it's a beautiful day. Then you sit around in the evening with classical music playing in the background, and the children are reading Shakespeare and <laughs> studying their Latin, and discussing the Puritan influences on the founding of the Republic, and, and you're sitting on the phone with a long-lost friend that you haven't talked to in 20 years, catching up on things, and it's just a, a happy time. And then before, before you go to bed, you are sorting out through your desk and kind of arranging things before the night, and you come across a $100 bill you forgot you had, and there it was under that piece of paper. And you just say to yourself, how could this day get any better? I wish this day would never end. Not all days are like that, are they? Some days you wake up in the morning and you are running late and you feel like you, though you slept eight hours, you feel like you slept one and you're exhausted and you could easily sleep another three or four hours. And breakfast gets burnt and the kids are all late and they've almost missed the bus and you get out the door and you get in the vehicle, which the, the teenagers and the spouse had borrowed over the weekend, and I'm keeping this entirely gender nonspecific, they borrowed over the weekend and the tank of gas is almost empty. And so you have to, even though you're running late for work, you have to stop and get gas because you are the only one in the house that knows how to run a gas pump, obviously. <laughs> Not that this happens in my house, but I'm just giving you a hypothetical situation. And you, you pull away from the gas station and you get to the office and the clients, the angry clients and the customers come out of the woodwork and the copier breaks down, the computer system is down, the internet is intermittent. And the boss is a, a bear that day, and all your coworkers are on edge, and everybody's gnarling at each other, and things are horrible. And that day goes on for days, days it goes on, before lunch even. And then you work another five days, and just in order to go home, you get home, you realize that you forgot to put the meat out for dinner to thaw, and so you have to change your dinner plans, you end up burning dinner. And the kids, rather than sitting around and reading Shakespeare and quoting the Puritans and talking about the founding of the Republic and studying their Latin to classical music, the kids are bickering with each other and arguing with each other and slamming the doors and not talking to one another, and you just want this day to go to end. So you can go to bed, and then you're shuffling through your desk at night right before you go to bed, kind of arranging things a little bit, and you come across that bill you forgot to pay. 
and there's another $100 out of your wallet. And you say to yourself, could this day get any worse? Right? Here's the reality. Both of those days come from the hand of God. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity. This is how God works. This is the way that life is. It's bent. There are turns and crooks in our stick, and we don't like that. But that is the way that He has designed these things. And it is the way He has designed them for our good. Thomas Boston, a Puritan who lived at the end of the 1600s, the beginning of the 1700s, he was preaching a sermon on this very text, and it was called The Crook in Our Lot. And he wasn't talking about crook as in thief, but the crook in our lot, the lot that God has given to us and appointed for us. And here's what Thomas Boston in that sermon says, quote, There is a certain train or course of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our life in this world, and that is our lot as being allotted to us by a sovereign God. In that train or course of events, some fall out cross to us and against the grain, and these make the crook in our lot. While we are here, there will be cross events as well as agreeable ones in our lot and condition. Sometimes things are softly and agreeably gliding along, but by and by there is some incident which alters that course, grates us and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here and no lot out of heaven without a crook. Close quote. What's, what he just said eloquently and seriously is what I was just joking about. There are good days and there are bad days. Some days run across us and they pain us. It's against the grain. Some days just glide on. But Boston says there is no such thing as a lot, a portion, an appointment by the hand of God in this world that is without its crooks and it is without its bends. There are both fortuitous and gracious and kind outpourings of God's goodness, good days in days of prosperity, and there are unfortuitous, unforeseen tragedies that strike us. That is the way that it is. It is, by, it is that way by the appointment of a sovereign God. We must embrace it. We can do nothing else. We must embrace it, understanding that not everything that is painful for us is bad for us, and understanding that not everything that is pleasant to us is good for us. We have to have that balance and understand those two things. Philip Ryken in his commentary on Ecclesiastes writes this, We are under the power of a sovereign and omnipotent ruler of the entire universe. We do not have the power to edit his plan for our lives, but far from driving us to despair, the sovereignty of God gives us hope through all of the trials of life. End quote. Think of Joseph. One day he's at home in the tent playing around while his dad gives him wonderful gifts that are unique to him and his brothers are out working in the field tending the sheep. It was a beautiful time. Those are good days. And then he is sold into slavery to Egypt. Bad days. Then he is, rises to the highest position in Potiphar's house. Good days. Then he is thrown into prison. Bad days. Then Pharaoh has a dream and he's pulled out of prison and made ruler over all of Egypt. Good days. This is, this is, this is Joseph's life. Good day, bad day, good day, bad day, good day. Now, if you looked at the, at the very beginning of that when he was sold into slavery into Egypt, would you have ever foreseen that that event in itself, by the providence of God, would end up delivering an entire nation and keeping his entire family alive? You would have never been able to see that. Who can tell a man what's going to come after him? Who can tell a man what the future holds? Can you look at Joseph on day one and be able to predict the outcome of that? No, because life has these crooks and these turns in it. Every, every life is different. Every, some lives have more crooks than others. Some lives are straighter than others. That is the way it is, by the appointment of a sovereign God. And if God has bent it, you cannot straighten it out. Give it up. You can't do it. You can kick against it. You can argue with it. Ultimately, we have to embrace it and accept it from His hand. 
because God is sovereign in these things. And a wise individual will trust in the one who has made it crooked and embrace the crookedness of life in this world. Why has God made it crooked? The end of verse 14. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I want you to notice, before we get into that final phrase, I want you to notice what our response is to be in each of these instances. In the day of prosperity, what? Be happy, Solomon says. Now, he's not talking about in a Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy, sort of a careless disregard for the concerns of life. That's not what he is describing. He is describing in the day of prosperity the same thing that we have seen him talk about earlier. Enjoy that as a gift and a blessing from the hand of God. Be happy. Delight in it. Thank God for it. Enjoy it. Eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy the life that God has given to you. That day of prosperity, enjoy it and delight in it. It is God's gift to you. In the day of adversity, Solomon doesn't say, be happy. He doesn't say in the day of adversity, hey, don't worry, be happy, man. That's not his, that's not his perspective at all. He's not saying that we disregard the day of adversity, but in the day of adversity, we stop and say, this has come from the hand of God as well. It's easy to be happy in the day of prosperity. In the day of adversity, he doesn't say put on a fake veneer of happiness and joy. But that is the time when we stop and say, God has appointed this for me. How will I handle this from the hand of a sovereign God? Since this day comes from him as well. Since the day of difficulty is his gift to me. Why? Because he knows that not everything that is painful is bad for me. And not everything that is pleasant is good for me. And so I can receive both from the sovereign hand of God. Why has God done this? Why has God made life bent? Not in a perverse or immoral sense. Why has God made life like this? Verse 14, so that we cannot discover what will come after us. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Look, if all that God gave us was days of prosperity, we would know what the future holds, wouldn't we? Yeah, good times, prosperity. If all that God gave us was days of adversity, we would know what the future holds, wouldn't we? We'd be able to predict it. But because life is bent like this, and there are days of prosperity mixed with days of adversity, and they come sometimes one after another, maybe a series of bad days and a series of good days, because God has mixed it all up like this, we have no idea what tomorrow brings. But though the future is unknown to us, our God is not unknown to us. And so we are called to trust a known God in the face of an unknown future. And to believe that God is sovereign in these things and that we can take these things from His hand and rejoice in the day of prosperity and reflect in the day of adversity that God has made both of them and that He is doing this for our good. That ultimately a sovereign God whom we know, even though we do not know the future, ultimately that sovereign God designs all of these things, the day of prosperity and the day of adversity, for His glory and for our good. And God never has to choose between those two things. Never. Whatever is most for His glory is most for our good. Whatever is most for our good is most for His glory. God has designed it in such a way that we not know what the future holds so that we would trust Him. We can't straighten what He has bent, but we can trust the one who bent it. Let's pray together. Our Father, You are good and gracious and kind to us beyond what we deserve, far, far beyond what we deserve. If we got what we deserved, we would all be cast immediately into eternal torment even now for our sin and our rebellion against you. But you, by your grace, have have gifted us, your people, with salvation. You have made us to know who our God is, and you have given us the grace and the faith to believe and to trust in you. We pray that that faith, which we have exercised by your grace in Jesus Christ, might also strengthen and encourage us in the times of adversity. We pray that in all of the days that you have appointed to us, we might rejoice in your goodness, knowing that the good days that you have given to us, the days of prosperity, are are reminders of your grace and your goodness, your kindness, 
and the pleasures that we will enjoy forevermore at your right hand. And the days of adversity are reminders to us that you are sovereign and that you are working out a perfect plan for your glory and for our good. And so we thank you that you are trustworthy and we pray that you'd give us grace to trust you. Help us to trust in your sovereignty and your providence, believing that all things are, are brought together and brought into our lot in this life so that we might honor and glorify and trust you. Continue to cast our hearts upon you, our great Savior, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.